today on Wine Access Unfiltered. Was there anything else that you kept from A Christmas Story? Yeah, I actually have the original bunny suit. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's the only one as far as I know that ever existed and that still exists. That's amazing. Well, welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered podcast. Vanessa, every Christmas, my family has a tradition, and I don't know if your family has a similar one, but we cannot call it Christmas time until we do one thing. Do you know what that might be? Um, well, I think I know what you're getting at, and I feel like it's it's a lot of people's Christmas tradition or holiday tradition. We watch A Christmas Story, which is what I'm getting at, every <laughs> single year. Without fail, Thanksgiving comes, and that night we turn it on, we break out the leg lamp, we find the Red Rider, and we do all the things to commemorate the occasion because it is officially Christmas, and it would not be that way without our friend Rafi Parker, who we're talking to today. Peter Billingsley on the podcast, and we are so excited to have him. He, of course, has matured and is now doing incredible things uh, behind the camera as a producer and director. And enjoys wine and comedy and a lot of your favorite things. So I can't wait to dive into this. I feel like I'm just going to sit back with some popcorn and just see what happens. (laughs) You know, I didn't even think about that until you just said it. And I was like, oh, you're right. We are like kind of two peas in a pod. Yeah, absolutely. He loves wine. And we were, I should mention, we were introduced to him by Steve Byrne, who was on our podcast, obviously, and, and mentioned Peter while we were discussing and laughing and trying not to spit out our <laughs> wine. But he had mentioned going to Napa with Peter. Anyway, a great guy that I'm excited to talk to. And I think we're going to have a load of fun with him today talking wine because he's very into it, as it turns out. I don't know um, if you knew that, if you gathered that from what Steve was saying, but Peter loves wine and he's very into organic wines, organically farmed wines, and apparently also has a great yeah. story about port. So we didn't stray far from that course this week. No, I'm excited to talk about Fort because we haven't talked really about fortified wine on this podcast yet. So this is a yeah. fresh day of discussion for us. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited too. And we're also not drinking a, a Port Port. We are drinking a, how would you describe this? Because it's not from Portugal. A Port style wine from California. And uh, organically farmed wine from Burgundy, which I'm excited to drink, as always. Selfish picks on our behalf. Yep, love that. This was (laughs) not recently opened. This might have been opened several hours ago. (laughs) (laughs) Well played, well played. Well, uh, since you're already on your way, I guess we should get started. So wine and glass, we are ready to go. Let's drink. All right, well, welcome to the podcast, Peter Billingsley. It's really, really good to have you on here. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm really thrilled to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. You got some wine? I do, yeah. And you guys were kind enough to send me a port, which is awesome, yes. which I like. I'm told there's a story there. You know, just for context, I like wines. I certainly wouldn't consider myself a wine expert. I don't know a lot of terminology, but I've had a lot of great experiences with wines. So when we were, we lived in Phoenix. I have two brothers and my dad, and we always kind of drank wine. We like wine. And we would kind of hang out in the house a lot and spend time together. My dad comes home from Trader Joe's and is like, I think I got something that's really amazing. We're like, okay, <laughs> he's got this, this old case. And on the case, it's like 1974. We're like, whoa. And we pull out the bottles and it's all these, it's 12 old bottles of port. He said, I found this bottle. And I was talking to the guy in the store and he's like, wow, this is just, you know, it's just old. He's like, I bet this is pretty good. The guy said, yeah, I think so. He said, do you have any more? He goes, yeah, I have a case. He's like, well, what do you want for it? And the guy's like, I don't know, a hundred bucks or something. So he goes, sold. 
So sort of sight unseen, assuming maybe this is great, he bought it. So we tried it, and it was unbelievable. And we had never had port before. We were pretty young. I was probably, well, probably 21, 22. (laughs) (laughs) Stick to that. We won't won't incriminate you on the podcast. Somewhere over 17. And we would hang out, and we would drink this, and we'd go into this little room, and we'd close the doors, and we'd smoke cigars, and we'd drink port. And I remember we played the soundtrack um, to the movie Big Night. All right, so then I was a little older. Okay. Because um, that was 96. Wait, Big Night, that's the that's the uh, the food movie, yeah? The Correct. Chef movie. It's a great movie. And it's just like, it's such a good soundtrack that kind of makes you hungry and thirsty for wine. Yes. Um, and so we would play that, and we would just talk, and we would drink this port like it was, you know, the greatest liquid in the world. And it was pretty good. And I remember one thing that I learned about it. Uh, the first bottle we got down, I poured it, and all this stuff mm, came yeah. out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh no. that's a meal at the end of this class. And yeah, so we had to keep the bottles vertical and kind of be careful as we poured them. And then my dad talked to someone about it, and he said, oh, don't throw that stuff out. Like, you can put that stuff on ice cream. Um, and it's probably really good. <laughs> Which seemed like, I don't think we, well, my dad probably did. But it seemed like a cool idea. But, you know. I couldn't tell you what necessarily the port tasted like, Mm -hmm. but I remember the great times we had around it Mm. and the great conversation and the music and just sort of the excitement of drinking it and opening it and then savoring each bottle as they got lower and lower and lower and lower and then Mm. drinking almost like you were on a desert island and you needed water and then like it would get down a little bit and then we'd share (laughs) the final bottle and then it was gone. Uh, But it was a great experience. I don't know how great it was, but it, it kind of cemented, I think, in a lot of ways, um, a sort of good connection to wine for me mm. um, around, in that case, family and good conversation and friends. And, and one of my first experiences with it was my dad liked this wine, Marcus de Caceres. Mm-hmm. Um, and back in the 80s, like it was pretty good or maybe not. He loved it, but he would open it up and keep it open for 30 minutes and just sort of, it was kind of my early exposure to it. And then say, let it sit for a half an hour. It's better when it does. And then we'd pour it and we'd drink it. Um, and liked it, and that kind of opened it. But the port was was a very cool experience um, around it, and I think kind of launched me into just sort of learning how to enjoy wine more as friendship, conversation, fun. Yeah. I love that port was the thing that launched you. I feel like that's a a wine that people are sort of yeah. fearful of because they think of it as like being, you know, it's a, it's a sweet wine. I don't want to drink a sweet wine, sweet wine, whatever. And Port is such a gorgeous, gorgeous wine that I think is truly underappreciated. But I love that you sort of like reversed that whole thing. And more importantly, I love the thing that you said about the connection because even as wine professionals, to me, I will always remember the people and the place and how I was feeling more than what I was actually tasting. That's that's a human thing. More than necessarily the wine. I think that that's totally right. And and it did give me love for port. And then sometimes if I'm out after dinner, I'll order a port. I don't know. So I'll just generally get a tawny or something that, you know, 10 or 20 or something that seems kind of safe because I know it's consistent, but I like it. And, you know, like if we're going to have a cigar, it pairs nicely with that. So. Well, and this is the first time we've had a fortified wine on the podcast, Amanda, right? So that is, oh, yeah, really? yes, yeah, this is yeah. the first. So thank you for uh, expanding our yeah. horizons. Glad that was a great choice. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. Well, we should talk about what we have yep. because this is sort of a special port. This is actually a port that, cheers, cheers thank you. Um, I've never had before. Uh, Vanessa, have you? Um, no, I mean, I, I know of its existence. I know this is something we, we brought a, a small quantity in for, um, for Laura Coffer, who handles our sort of VIPs, you know, for her to, 
to play with, but um, it's super limited. So no, I I haven't had it, but obviously William Selliam, amazing producer of, you know, more known for Pinot Noir, obviously. Um, but these are all traditional Portuguese varieties in this, you know, Tariga Nacional, which I think is like one of the most noble, grape, underrated, noble grape varieties, red grape varieties. Look at you, master of wine. <laughs> you can add, I love it. Um, yeah. Really impressive. Yeah. Tinta um, <laughs> Cal, Tinta Francesca, a couple. But anyways, so so made very traditionally, but not from Portugal. So this is, you know, this is from California. It's a California producer, but made with the same varieties and the same style. This is aged for about 50 months. Um, and it's a vintage. So yeah, I'm just, I'm really excited. It's really good. And for people who drink port, sometimes port has that kind of hard finish after a sip. Like this has none. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's really smooth. I'm about to go raid my cheese cabinet. Like it's really smooth. It's really good. Yeah. No, I, I think it's perfectly Californian, but it's also, it's got all the things that we love about a great vintage port. You know, this is, this is truly a unicorn wine, right? Mm-hmm. Like William Salium highly allocated, impossible to get producer in the first place. And then they make this tiny, you know, I say unicorn because like it's, you know, one is very rare, but also like you just don't see it out in the wild that often. I've certainly never seen it. And I really built my whole career around California wine. It's the first time I'm having it. Um, so it's pretty cool. I've, I've never, uh, I've never encountered it before. And I'm curious uh, how this would age, though. I don't know the history and how long they've been ma- making this, but I would I would love to see this laid down for a while because I've had old California ports, you know, with 30, 40 mm-hmm. years on them, and they're just spectacular. Um, so, sh- you know, should we be able to get a few more bottles? Maybe. Yeah, this is 13. That port we had was, I guess, at the time, knowing it was, it was, it was probably almost 25 years old. Mm. Um, and it just, it held up so well and tasted so good. Such an ageable wine. I think collectors or, you know, even people that are looking into getting into collecting wine forget about the ageability of port. And in fact, when people come to me and they're like, hey, I really want to, I want to birth your wine. I want something with age. I'm like, just go try it. Like if you're, if your birth year is in a good vintage for port, go port. Like that is such a no brainer for me because they're just, they're always so good. Mm-hmm. They please a lot of palates. Um, you know, they rarely disappoint when they've got 40 plus years of age. And I mean, at that point, like that's usually who's asking for a uh, for the birth year wines, but well, have you ever had a birth year wine, Peter? No, I haven't. I've never even heard of that concept. That sounds cool. Uh, I think I'll try it. Ooh. I think that's smart. That's really fun. <laughs> no, I have not heard of that. <laughs> We've just opened Pandora's box for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to tell you that. That's awesome. And port is, is to your point, I mean, it's such a great birth year one too, because it's actually, I mean, you can spend some money on port, but when you think about how long these can age, a vintage port, it's actually like an amazing steel that you can hold the onto these bottles for decades and decades. Oh, totally. Right. And they're not only still beautiful, but they're better. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So it's, yeah, it's a yeah. wonderful way to commemorate a special year. I'm going to take you up on that. I assume there's none left of that that original 12-pack? No, they it, it, they went so quickly. I mean, we we really tried to slow down. Like, we'd have conversations. We should do it. It's like, no, we got to wait. Like, we got to, we're going to rush through this. Yeah. I, it it went fast. And then he went back and tried to look for it and could never find it again. I think it was honestly some odd accidental box that showed up that they didn't know what they had. And he found it and asked them what they wanted. They said it. He got it. He brought it home. And we we just rushed through it. Yeah, it might be one of those things like accidentally got delivered there and they're like, ah, it's more trouble for us to come pick it up. Just keep it. Exactly. You know, and you ended up with like treasure. Yeah. I think it came off the truck at the wrong <laughs> store. <laughs> yeah. To our benefit. Yeah, it was great. But it really kind of activated as such a great social setting for through wine. Because I think prior to that, I just didn't yeah. have as much of that connection. 
Yeah. And I do find, at least for my family, wine has been something that really sort of, it's not a conversation piece, but it's a piece that allows for conversation. And I mean, which is, you know, the total premise of this podcast, but yeah, for sure. Especially when you're talking about generations, you know, it's interesting because I came into my thirties and, you know, actually spent the summer with my parents and we sort of had to like get to know each other again. Like I hadn't seen them for an extended period of time. Like we'd see each other for the holidays. We see each other, you know, for, you know, a couple of days, a couple, you know, a week here and there, but I hadn't really spent an enormous amount of time with them. And so getting reacquainted with my parents and being able to do that over bottles of wine was actually like, was a really fun experience. And I remember the wines that we had at dinner over and over and they got to know me like as an adult, which was kind of cool. Like, I think they forgot that I mm-hmm. had gone from 20 to 30 and um, had a whole career change in the process. So <laughs> they got to like see me in my element. We still do it. You know, when I go home and see my parents, it's, you know, around 5.30, 6 o'clock. My dad's like, uh, you want some wine? Nice. Sure. And then invariably the conversation you know, gets a little deeper. Yeah. Then, and we just connect. <laughs> Everyone kind of slows down a little bit. It's nice. And sometimes as gifts for him, like I'll just sort of send him some wine club thing. Mm. You know, just to get different wines that I'll, yeah. um, that maybe he wouldn't even go out or think of and buy. Just to sort of shake it up. And then I'll call him and say, what was that one like? And so it's it's something that I think started then and has stayed with us, you know, through to this day. Yeah, I love that. Um, well, we have two wines. We didn't, you know, just want to get you rip-roaring drunk on port because that would be a mistake. Yeah, for sure. That's not that kind of podcast. <laughs> no, you kind of wake up a little rough. I mean, I try to keep it at one glass. <laughs> is that where you're, is that your like, your safety zone is one glass? Try to. Yeah, I mean, maybe two if it's, you know, if it's a big night. Yeah. But um, I, 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 I try not to go too heavy on too many glasses. Although... This one is not as sweet as a lot of the ones I have, so maybe it's better. Yeah. Oh, the the port is not as sweet for the other one. No, it's not as sweet as mm. sort of other stuff. So I don't know. I mean, it was a question that I had for you guys, and maybe it's as good of a spot to jump in. Like for people, I feel like sometimes this kind of comes and goes. Like, and a, a lot of people said to me through red wines that they don't like them because they wake up with a headache or they feel puffy in the morning or their eyes swell. It it sort of affects them. And someone had said to me at one point that. You have to be careful because there will be histamines put into wine. And, you know, like when you take an antihistamine, obviously that's supposed to deswell you. So these are the things that you're trying to avoid. Is there truth in that? There's naturally histamines in wines, but I'll, I'll let Vanessa go into it. No, I mean, you, that's uh, that's just it. There, there are, yeah, there are histamines in wines. It's not something that's like, you know, they're dumping in there uh, by the bucket or something like that, that that's being added. But but yes, there are histamines. And I, actually, I'm impressed that you know that because a lot of what I hear people blaming their headaches on are sulfites. Yes. Um, when in fact, you know, an actual sulfite al- allergy is deadly if you're actually allergic. Um, yeah, it's probably the histamine. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then the person who told me this said that Italians, Spanish, Argentinians tend to have less than certain other regions. Have you heard that? Less on the histamine side? No. No, I, I've heard that too. And no, I don't think there's any truth to that. I think, you know, some, I, said, who, I was just talking to somebody and she was like, well, I went to a Spanish wine growing region. They said their wines won't give you headaches like the American wines. Well, that just sounds like a total sales pitch. No, exactly. Yeah. And I was like, it just sounds to me like they have a problem with American wines. <laughs> I agree. But then the organic wines a lot of people are drinking now and they're swearing by it. People that said they couldn't drink red wine before are now starting to get back into it. I don't know if there's truth in that, that you're finding that there's something in what's being billed as the kind of organic movement that feels better the next morning? 
there's definitely so many benefits. I mean, I'm a huge fan of organic farming and biodynamic, um, not just for wine, but for for any agriculture. But the, I think before circling back to that, another thing that gives people headaches is frankly just being dehydrated. So, you know, did you drink as much water as you drank wine? You know, um, so yes, that's I think that's often the culprit. That's that's uh, not uh, not blamed. There's no necessarily like scientific proof that organic wines are not going to give you a headache. But I would say that like anything we put in our bodies, like it matters what happens, you know, in in the field, in the ground and in, in the vineyard. And so um, I think just having that type of um, attention and care shows um, a commitment to sort of the long term health of the vineyard, which I think, you know, is reflects very positively on, you know, on the farmer, on the viticulturalist to, to practice that way. And whether it's certified or non-certified or sustainable or, or, or even biodynamic, you know, I just think, you know, the more somebody cares about the earth and the health of, of not just like that year's crop, but next year's and next year's, next year's, next year's and, and everything around it. I mean, that has to be, that has to be good. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right. So I digressed. I think you had no. an earlier question, but thank you. Cause we talk a lot about that and I have some friends who will bring organic wine over mm-hmm. to drink it where, or where they wouldn't sort of drink if I'm serving them just something more like No, it's an interesting topic. And it's one that I think people bring up a lot. In in fact, I'm actually, I'm doing a whole series on it right now with California wines because it is such a misnomer as far as, you know, what is organic wine? What is biodynamic wine? What is sustainable wine? And I think one of the biggest misnomers is there are very few organic wines in the United States. There's a lot of wines made with organically farmed grapes, but the labeling requirements in the United States are such that if you wanted to la- label a wine and have it certified organic by the USDA, have its uh, CCOF, um, that wine cannot contain sulfites, which is present in like, you know, 99% of the wines out there. It's a preservative. So I think, you know, one of the things that um, I always tell people is, you know, do your due diligence, research who is farming organically, because it won't always say on the label whether or not it's, you know, it's made with organic grapes and whether it, they do all the right things in the winery itself. But I think one of the reasons that we are drinking this Burgundy is because Burgundy is such a, you know, such a big player in the organic space. You know, there are a lot of the vineyards are being farmed organically. And Vanessa, you and I have had this producer before on the podcast, uh, the Jean Criveau, but we've not had the uh, Von Romanet tonight. So uh, any excuse to drink Burgundy is a good one by us. <laughs> so hopefully you feel the same way. There you go. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you. I can't believe that's sending your glass already, Vanessa. Oh, it is. I just refilled. Just empty. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Amanda, you know me better than that. <laughs> she already finished it. Pure shock. Um, yeah, this is really good, too. Mm, yeah. This is. I'm glad you chose this because I don't drink a lot of Burgundies, not because I don't like them, but maybe I just don't have confidence to buy them. Mm-hmm. You know, meaning like I just don't know a lot about them. So Yeah. So it's nice to try something new. No, it's an intimidating region for sure. Yeah. I, I always think, Von Romane too, like if you're going to just go right for it. I mean, to me, this is some one of, some of the most beautiful, expressive, perfumed wines from Burgundy. And for me, you know, Amanda's heard me talk about this, but like when I taste wine, a lot of what I, I look for and I appreciate is, is not just the, you know, the aromas and the flavors, but like the palate shape and how it feels texturally. And for me, there's, um, there's always a spherical nature of Von Romani on the palate where it, you know, it doesn't sort of kind of, it kind of like tastes how it sounds, right? Mm -hmm. It it does. That's a good way of putting it, but it has this sort of like beautiful Mm -hmm. volume 
you know, um, and, and sort of round completeness on the palate. Like there's no hard edges. It just sort of continues to kind of reverberate. Anyway, I could go on and on as you can probably tell. But, um, but anyway, point is, thank you for allowing us to uh, have an excuse to drink bone, bone remedy. Basically what Vanessa's saying is anytime we get to drink champagne or burgundy, we're pretty happy campers on this podcast. I'm pumped too. This is perfect. Well, the other thing, like the, the legs, right? That was sort of, I mean, uh-huh. mm-hmm. this is my limited wine expression. That was sort of one of the first things we learned. If there's a lot of them, it's good, right? So. Or what are we looking for? Okay, so the legs is like one of these things that I totally get why people attach to you. Because one, you know, it's fun to say. And then two, it's like easy to look for, right? Easy to find, yeah. Yeah. And I, so I get that. And I think even before, you know, Vanessa and I, neither of us came from wine drinking backgrounds. So it was even, you know, before I got into wine, I was like, oh, the legs, that's important, right? So the legs actually don't tell you a lot about the quality of the wine, but it'll tell you things like how much, like if the alcohol is a little bit higher, it's basically a measure of viscosity. So the thickness of the liquid. So whether or not, you know, it's higher in alcohol or, you know, like the port, like it's very viscous. The legs you'll see on that, you know, will take a slower time to fall because there's residual sugar in that wine. So so, um, oh, that's helpful. So yeah, the legs are actually just sort of like a, you know, they're fun to look at, but they don't tell you a whole lot about what's inside. Tell you how drunk you're going to get, basically. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or if your if your glass isn't completely clean, it also will also that. change the, how the legs look. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. so you're drinking wine with dad and your brothers, and then what? You start getting into it a little bit. You start going to wine shops. Like you become wine curious. Yeah, for sure. I think always been wine curious. And then living in California, you know, like the access to Napa and Sonoma. Mm-hmm. Um, I think finally the curiosity grabbed hold of me probably in my mid-20s and just took a random trip up there with no plan. To Napa? Yeah. And was cruising around. I Actually, my first time up there, I have a good friend whose wife grew up in Sonoma. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was a kid there and she went to high school there and kind of grew up there. Lucky her. Um, which was very cool. In fact, she used to say like at all the high school parties she would go to where generally, you know, kids are drinking beer and stuff. Kids are like sipping Pinot and would steal their parents' wine. <laughs> just like we would steal our parents' beer. Yeah, that sounds about right. Just had cases of wine living up there. So it was sort of a different culture, right? Like the kids trying to act all tough, but they're sipping wine. It made it a little tough. Um, <laughs> and she knew the area. So a small group of us went up and turned a bunch of vineyards, which was really cool. And that was kind of my first experience. Do you remember where you went? Yeah. I mean, one of the ones we went to was Opus One. Oh, nice. Which is a great one to go to, right? Which is super fun. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it's a great wine. We're laughing because I think like 75% of the podcast, someone mentions Opus One, which is my favorite thing because I just, the center of Napa Valley and we love Opus One. So you just check the box for us. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also, they give you a glass at the end of it, you know, and, and that's yeah. like for someone who's not super experienced in it or young to it. It's like, whoa, this is amazing. Yeah. And then I don't remember the rest, but I remember, you know, cruising around. And then I had a lot of friends who would say, oh, well, the way to do it is you get a car, you get a bunch of friends, and then you can not worry about driving. Definitely recommend that. Yeah, for sure. Because I didn't realize at first. I was like, oh, what you, it's just a little sip. And then by your second winery, you're, you're swerving, you know, walking on the path. Um, exactly. So I would start going up and then kind of getting more wine curious and just trying different stuff, I guess, and trying to learn a little bit about it and would start buying wines. And then I think, you know, probably by mid to late 30s, it became, I'd say wine became kind of my go-to beverage. And then whenever I go somewhere, I try to order a bottle of wine from that country, even if they're not known for wine. Um, I would just say, do you have any local wines? Smart. Um, 
And if it's on the menu, generally it's going to be probably one of their better, especially if it's a place not known for wine. It's going to be pretty good. And I've probably gotten to taste some stuff that I would have never had a chance to taste because I don't know that I would get like Romanian wine here. You know, so if I'm in Romania when I was, it's like, all right, what do you have on the menu that's a local wine? <laughs> What's one of your better local wines? I'm going to try it. What were you doing in Romania? Uh, my brother was living in Turkey at the time. And so I went to visit him and a lot of okay. a lot of the Turkish community's vacations in Romania and in particular skis there. So, I mean, that was another crazy night. So we went skiing in Romania, went to a restaurant. Wow. Ordered a lot of local and crazy wines and uh, and they served a lot of wild game like um, like deer and bear and all kinds of things that you never had access to and then, you know, served a lot of wines with them. But I think my first big experience with different wines, I went to a restaurant um, that did the wine pairing thing and and it's a great one. And this was, I guess, a little bit later, but it's Joel Rubichon in Las Vegas. Oh, hell yeah. That place oh, yeah. is amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is... Look, if you're up or you're winning or the casino's comping you, you can justify it. It's not a cheap meal. (laughs) It is so worth it, I think, for the wine pairing. And that was where, and so we did that where you have like an eight-course meal, something you do once in your life and kind of do it. And then they put a bunch of different wines with them, each one different. And I remember the guy that night served lamb, and then he served a wine from Afghanistan. Oh, cool. Um which was kind of cool, right? So you think, okay, Middle Eastern cuisine, kind of known for that, and had a sort of Middle Eastern taste. So he was doing the same thing that kind of I was doing, where I was traveling and then ordering local wines. Not that I had ordered one from there, but it was sort of a cool concept. And so he paired a wine from there, and it was very cool. And so that just sort of opened my mind up, I think, a little bit, right? Like to kind of... Yeah, that's very cool. Right? It's all different. Everyone's trying it. They've been doing it since the beginning of time. Um, you know, you can get a little too focused in California or France, right? And Italy and the big areas. But it was it was kind of a cool mind-opening experience for me to think of that. What a cool experience and what a great, perfect restaurant to have that at. I mean, they are such masters at what they do there. And there's a little hack. If you go to the restaurant next door, which I think is, so it's Joel Robuchon and then I forgot what the, like the bar, maybe it's Bar Robuchon or something, but there is a restaurant next door. It's a similar fare to what you're having next door, but they also have like the same wine list. So we went there and I had a friend who was the sum there and he like totally hooked it up. So, I mean, maybe it's not the same experience for everybody, but I'm sure that place, if you want to have like the, uh, you know, the baby version of what you did, you can do that right next door. I think it's still open at the MGM. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's totally worth it because they really do an exceptional job. And then I used to, um, I produced a show with John Favreau called Dinner for Five. It was on for a long time and it was a lot of celebrities that would have dinner and it was sort of, a, it was five of them that would have dinner and we got to do it, shoot at a lot of different restaurants in Los Angeles. And it was an actual real life dinner. So we'd go to the restaurant, the guests would order food and invariably get a bottle of wine or two. And the restaurants would generally give really nice bottles because it was sort of on TV and the guests. And mm-hmm. I would always kind of pull a waiter over while shooting. And <laughs> give me a little bit. Hit me up. Yeah, just, yeah. So I've tried to use the perks along the way. That sounds like a perk that you should definitely use as a producer. You need to make sure everything is is in good working order. Of course. Have to try it. I'm active <laughs> for the safety of my guests. Um, do you remember any of the places that you went for that show? Yeah, it was a lot of restaurants. Um, I mean, the best restaurant that we went to was El Angerie, which was a French restaurant in LA that's now since closed. But it was a little like a Joel Rubichon. Um, and it was sort of smaller portions. And then uh, one of my favorites was the Saddle Peak Lodge in Malibu, which is kind of a big game 
place and it's kind of designed like a uh, like a lodge and there's a lot of game heads on the wall and they serve a lot of venison and elk and um, sort of more wild meats and have a lot of really, really good wines. You've quite the adventurous palate. I'm impressed. I like to try stuff. Yeah, no, you got to try it. I mean, even if you don't like it, it's sort of worth, <laughs> it's worth giving it a shot. I'll tell you the other good piece of advice my dad gave me about wine. Um, and I don't know if this goes against what you think, but he said, you know, wine's meant to be enjoyed. So whether you've paid $7 or $100 for a bottle, like if you don't like it, don't drink it. You know, if it's not your thing, like some people feel obligated to finish because they kind of spent it or, or I got to finish this mm-hmm. bottle. It's like, if you like it, you like it. If you don't, and if you like something that's here, you know, that's the point of it is you should be trying new things and finding it, but it's meant to be enjoyed. And if you have something that you like, drink it. And if you don't, don't like it's, it's fine. Yeah, I think most people wouldn't do that with food, right? They wouldn't say like, oh, I really don't like this. I'm going to force myself to eat it anyway, just because, right? So why why is it different with wine? So I think that's a great point. Yeah, and it, it was sort of a good calibration because there's stuff that sometimes I buy and try and I don't like and I'll sort of say, okay, you guys drink this. I'm going to drink it instead of like... <laughs> The good thing is like you can usually make friends like if you're giving away wine. So yeah, even if you don't like it, I'm sure you have a neighbor or someone who will be very appreciative for you to just leave it on their doorstep. Totally true. Yeah, exactly right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like, you know, you were referred to us or I guess introduced to us by Steve Byrne, who we had on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, So between Steve and uh, Vince Vaughn and John Favreau, apparently, uh, you're like surrounded by culinary lovers, wine lovers. Um, Is that like, is that your tribe of people? Do you just try to like surround yourself with people who just love food and wine? Yeah, for sure. It's interesting. No, I never thought about it that way. But I mean, Vince does like wine as well. And, you know, is is adventurous. I think in a good way, if we go out to dinner, he'll try new stuff on a wine menu and order stuff and talk to the sommelier. And, you know, he's been trying to learn a little bit about it, uh, which I think is cool. And um, he likes a lot of French wines. We um, we learned a little bit from, uh, we did a movie, Couples Retreat, uh, which shot in Bora Bora. Mm-hmm in French Polynesia. You directed and, that, right? Yes. And one yeah. of the actors in the movie is Jean Renault, who's a very well-known actor, famous for a lot of films, including The Professional, is from France, obviously, and knows wines well, like really well. Wines and olive oil. I think their family's in the olive oil business. And they grow it and they make it. And it was cool because he was teaching a lot of the cast members that maybe weren't super exposed to wine. Because in French, this resort that we were at was interesting because it was kind of a training ground for a lot of the European waiters, waitresses, and hosts that would then go on. So it was the St. Regis Resort, but they'd get a lot of the graduates. So they had a lot of really good stuff, and they were kind of forced to explain to you, and they had to learn how to do it before they're shipped off to a really big resort somewhere you know, in Europe. So they had a lot of really good wines, and he knew that, and he would order a lot of them. He was such a lover of it, and I think got a lot of the cast into it just because he was so passionate and was sort of a gentle teacher, like, here, try this or smell this. And it, it's the one thing I found about people that really love wines. They enjoy just exposing other people that might be intimidated or maybe don't know a lot. You know, it's it's just nice sort of when you see that, that they want to include other people in sort of what they love. Because I think a lot of people are intimidated. Yeah. So it's nice when, and I don't think it's true that, I'm sure you guys know maybe some people are super snooty about it, but my exposure to people that know a lot about it want to include. I'm glad to hear you've had good experiences with people who know about wine that are willing to teach. I think some people have had, to your point, the opposite experience. You know, not everyone who knows about wine um, wants to teach or, you know, wants to feel, wants to make you feel welcoming. But I think the circuit that that we know, you know, the Vanessa and I both live in, in Napa Valley and the circuit that we know is very inclusive. You know, nobody wants it to be 
intimidating. Everybody, I mean, honestly, the more people that enjoy wine, the more bottles we get to open, which is, so it's really just selfish if you're thinking about it. <laughs> we just want to drink more wine and open more bottles and we don't want to see it go to waste. So um, totally, we'd rather you set the White Claw down and pick up the Burgundy. That's kind of our motive. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I do enjoy White Claw, true. But, uh, well, yeah. and I think for people who are really passionate about it, you know, it makes sense to try to bring other people in because then you can share it with the people that you care about, that you enjoy being with, you know, you know, because wine isn't meant to be like, oh, I'll drink this and you guys all drink beer over there or whatever. I mean, that's fine if that's what you like. But I think if you really love it, you want to share that experience, you want to be able to talk about it. Yeah, that's why it's sold in a bottle, right? I mean, it's not <laughs> exactly. 12 ounces. <laughs> Sold in a larger size. No, they are trying. Hopefully it's not just you drinking it. <laughs> I know. So you were talking about your sort of pairing experiences at restaurants, but when you're at home, do, is that something that you pay attention to? Kind of what you're eating and drinking together? A little bit. I can probably do better with it, but yeah, I do. Like I've recently discovered a couple apps that maybe help out with that, and I'll sort of look at mm. you know hit a wine and then get it, and then it might share some suggestions of what it's good with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've probably started doing that a little bit more, but I think that's a good, do you have any recommendations actually for how to, f- how to figure that out? Ooh. Like if I'm, you know, eating steak or, or just like at home on a more casual level, not, yeah, you know, wanting to go get some crazy bottle of wine, but just how to kind of whittle it down to something that would work. So I'll tell you the long version. I won't tell you the shortcut cause I don't know that there is one, but the long version is one, learn how to cook. Um, or start paying attention to what you're eating and the flavors that are in there. And then two, get yourself a Coravin and start trying lots of different wines with all the food that you're making to see what works, because that is truly the only way that you will figure it out. So for me, it was buying diversely because I realized when the pandemic hit that I was like, I only have like one kind of wine in my wine fridge. I need to start buying more different, more of different types of things. And I had also left the hospitality industry, which meant that I was cooking more at home. So it was like a, a reintroduction to this part of my life, or I guess a, a new introduction. So my recommendation is get a Coravin. And, you know, since you're like a, a one to two glass kind of guy, it sounds like, you know, pour yourself two ounces of this, two ounces of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and just start, just start playing around with it. See what works, because that's sort of what we would do after our shifts at, um, I used to work at press and every night we would get dinner. And so myself and the Psalms, we would sit in the back and we would grab a few different wines to try all the different foods with. And that's how you learn. You know, you taste different things. Does this work? Does this not work? What well, you know, the things that we think work in our minds, you know, don't always work in practice. And you can kind of see where the where the contrast is, where the similarities are. Like, do you want this to be a pairing that brings out certain things or do you want it to mute certain things? And the only way that you can really figure that out is your own palate. It's through trial and error. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And an easy way to do that is a Coravin. So, you know, I don't, do you, have you ever seen a Coravin before? Yeah, no, I just, I just recently got one. I have not used it yet, but it's smart. Yeah. So that you're not obviously opening 92 bottles. Um, I mean, no judgment, <laughs> you know, to sort of slowly try it. Yeah. Or like open, you know, open five a week, right? Like right. pick five different types of wines and then, you know, pour different, different ones. If you don't want to go the Coravin route. Um, I just like it because it, you know, it means I don't have like, corks like falling out of bottles in the fridge (laughs) but i think like to amanda's point too it's it's like the best way is just to experiment you know however that is is like because ultimately i mean i have maybe one or two you know quote-unquote rules but those are that i follow for food wine pairing but there really are no rules because it's your palate it's what you like to eat, what what you like to drink. What are your rules? So the, the one thing that I pretty much always follow is 
with anything that has a good amount of heat, you know, actual spice to it is I always choose something with like a little bit of sweetness, you know, uh, at least like an off dry or something with a good amount of fruitiness just because it, it pairs so well together. That's that's kind of my only hard and fast other than no, same here. maybe also with dessert. I don't eat a lot of dessert, but like you usually, you know, want your wine to be sweeter than your dessert. Otherwise, um, it'll make the, the wine taste bitter. Um, so that's something I would follow too. But other than that, I mean, I don't really have a lot of rules. Do you, Amanda? There's a few. And I think like it goes back to fundamentals of just tasting. And so maybe maybe I should have started with like the foundational elements of tasting. So your salt, fat, acid, heat, how those work in food. And then you can sort of play into that with wine. So if you've got a steak that's really fatty, so you've got heavy protein, heavy fat, so you've got a ribeye, the two things that you're going to want, because you take a bite of that steak and immediately you've got palate fatigue, right? Your palate feels like it, like it needs something to refresh it. So the things that you're going to want are a wine that's got tannin because tannin attaches to protein. So that's going to help to like, you know, bind together and then break it down. And then the other thing that you want to contrast your fat is acid. So you want a wine that's got a little bit of acidity so that you are refreshing your palate every time you take a sip of the wine. Like the intention of that pairing is so that you can continue eating, right? It refreshes your palate. It's just like if I have something really, really savory, sometimes I reach for something sweet. It's the same thing. Like our palate just like wants that complementary flavor. Um, so yeah, so the foundations are just like learning your salt, fat, acid, heat and how they play into food. And then acid generally wants acid. So you always want your acids to match. It's why cheese generally pairs better with white wines than red wines because white wines tend to have more acidity. And then um, to Vanessa's point, the sweetness, spicy foods generally want a little bit of sweetness because we don't generally want to intensify the spice any more. We want to tamper it down and then dessert as well. So that's it. Other than that, you can kind of play around and like... Oh, that's helpful. Go to like yeah. Wine Folly is great. I don't know if you've been on the Wine Folly site, but she's got great recommendations for... Um, that's a great like entree into wine. It's Madeline Puckett and, you know, she breaks everything down by variety and by region. And it's, you know, it's really, really easy to follow. She does a great job. Nice. Well, and I remember when I was first getting into to learning about wine too, I cannot remember the author, but um, that there's that book like What to Eat with What You Drink. Mm. Page and Dornenberg. It's a great book. Yeah. It's very easy. And the way it's laid out is you can look it up by food or by wine. So you can kind of come at it from either angle. Like, oh, I have this ingredient. What should I pair with it wine-wise? Or I have this wine. What should I pair with ingredient-wise? And um, right. so I, I I used that a lot when I was when I was still learning. And That's a great book. That's such a good recommendation. Yeah. I'll send it to you, Peter. I'll find it. I think it's Page and Dornenberg um, that wrote it. They actually used to come into the restaurant I worked at it uh, in New York. And they used to do, yeah, when they were they were working on their vegetarian cookbook. I think it's the same one you're talking about, but it's such a great book. And I was so excited when they came in because I was a big, big fan of what they do. And that is sort of where I, you know, I learned about all of the, you know, the complicated things that are very simple that are happening in your mouth. Um, that's a good one. I like that. There we go. Um, a wine that you're going back to more of right now. Is it the port or is it the burgundy? It's pretty evenly split right now. <laughs> Kind of hard to go back to the port, I guess. No, I mean, I don't mind for, for these purposes. Probably the burgundy right now, and then I'll probably finish with the port. So this is dinner, and that's dessert, I suppose. Perfect. Yeah, we just gave you a whole meal on a podcast. So I have to ask in your background there, is that is like a, like a, a chair from a specific movie that you produced or directed? It looks like one of those, you know, when I see people on set looking all fancy. Oh, I collect. Um, yeah, so we do use director's chairs, they're called, like the folding chairs on sets. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, not super sentimental, but one keepsake I do have is I keep whatever my chair back was from the shoot. Mm. And so sometimes I'll, I'll rotate them on the director's chairs. Um, so which one do you have on there now? So that one is Iron Man. Oh, cool. 
That's really yeah. Cool. So that was from the first one, but it's like the one thing I like to keep and have collected, and a lot of them go kind of way back because I've been in this business for a really, really long time. Um, so I've got some stuff from when I was a kid all the way through. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of the one cool keepsake. What do you have from when you were a kid? Did a show called Real People. I have the Christmas Story one. Cool. Um, the Dirt Bike Kid one. Um, some kind of some uh, some very cool ones. My mom is really good about keeping those, and then she tried to collect a lot of slate boards as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, very cool. Was there anything else that you kept from a Christmas Story? Yeah, I actually have the original bunny suit. <laughs> Um, oh my god! Oh, wow, it's the only one, as far as I know, that ever existed and that still exists. That's amazing. <laughs> that has to go in like the Smithsonian or something, right? One day, yeah. Wow. Uh, I have an original gun from it. Oh my god! I have the original cowboy suit that I wore in that fantasy sequence, the kind of yeah rhinestone suit, and then I have the slate board from the movie. That's cool that you like. I mean, you were young when you did that. You had the wherewithal to. You know, to remember to to keep all those things. Yeah, my mom was great about it. But I guess it was a pretty big moment in your life. Well, not at the time. I mean, it was not anything, you know, I mean, honestly, it was sort of another, in some ways, another job and the mm. expectations. I'm sure everyone goes into any project hoping for the best and you want it to be successful. But I mean, this one on paper was a little, it was a period movie about a kid who wants a BB gun. And <laughs> this guy's talking the whole time in the background. It was really like, all right, well, we'll see. Um, and then turned out to be something, you know, that has sort of stood, stood the test of time. So sometimes the things you don't expect to do that, do it. Do you think about that as a producer now? I mean, like, you know, a movie like that, that was sort of made, you know, kind of like no frills, didn't seem like it was going to be anything great that just had such a great story and, and characters and had that, like, you know, these heartfelt moments that were so relatable. Do you think about that as a producer and in real life now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I say you always really go in. I mean, hopefully, at least this is how I try to approach stuff, really believing in what you're working on, really trying as hard as you can to make it the best that you can, um, caring about it, being passionate about it, um, and, you know, hoping that you can push it there. I think the one thing that it taught me, like, I mean, there's, there's merchandise on that movie that's massive. And who would have expected you know, there to be merch? So I think you sort of, you know, in contract negotiations or whatever, everyone's like, well, we don't have to worry about this. And I'm like, wait a minute, you never know. We should probably yeah. just protect ourselves here because you truly never know kind of which one's going to potentially pop out or do something. And, you know, oh, that's interesting. It was a small movie and they had tried, they had worked um, the writer and the director for, it's come around 12 years to get that movie made. So it became a very passionate project. The director had to agree to do other work for the studio for them to green light it. So it was a real, a real effort. And that movie really almost never got made. Wow. And then it was kind of a slow roll, right? Like it didn't, you know, it did, did okay. Totally. Came and went in the theaters a little bit and it benefited. I think it came out in 83. So it benefited from sort of video and VHS, mm. Betamax kind of hitting. And so it was one of those early titles on a movie that came out. and so next Christmas it came out and then it just cable started cable TV and it just slowly started building an audience and, and returning every year. And it was surprising how much it came back. I mean, I liked the movie and, you know, I think everyone was proud of it, but it just didn't really grab a huge audience at first. Well, it certainly has made an impact. <laughs> yeah. And then, so like, how do you feel these days, like heading into holiday season? Are you like, oh man, I'm going to have to see this movie every time I turn the TV on? Are you like, hey, look, 
this stood the test of time. It's still out there. Like people still want to see this. Yeah. I mean, I think more that, I mean, look, first of all, I learned a while ago, it's not going away. So, you know, you're better to shake hands with it than you are to try to fight it. And I have no control over that. Um, but it's also not some, you know, weird pop cultural event. It's a good movie, you know, and I can objectively say that now because I'm far enough sort of a, from it that I can appreciate what people appreciate about it. And so from that, st- I mean, it, it's the truth. And I do say this a lot, like it, it, it winds up on and has in our home, not because I'm so excited to see myself. It just has started to kind of not feel like Christmas sometimes if you don't hear the sounds of it as well. <laughs> so I've, 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 I've had enough distance from it now where I think we definitely, you know, a lot of people in my family feel like, oh yeah, you know, this is the movie that we like. You're definitely making my dad smile right now listening to this uh, in the future because we actually were on a ski trip going up to uh, Maine and my dad happened to stop in an old antique shop and he found an old Red Rider. Oh, nice. And yeah. um and uh he bought it obviously and when Christmas my my cousin came over and he had had it we all love the movie so much but my Dan my cousin Dan especially loved it and he put it oh cool in the corner with a red ribbon on it behind the tree and he said Dan there's something you missed back behind the tree so now oh, now it's uh it's in <laughs> his hands his very capable hands today but um I am curious though you've been involved in three Christmas movies not just a Christmas story so Elf and Four Christmases do you have a favorite Christmas movie. It doesn't have to be those three, but I feel like you're an expert having been involved with three. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I, I like those. I think It's a Wonderful Life is is one that I enjoy watching as well, for sure. Uh, and then there's kind of a good, there's, there's kind of, there's some other Christmas movies, like mm. there's a good debate on movies that might be set at Christmas time and are they Christmas movies or are they not? Oh, yeah. And one of the biggest ones, a movie that I like, it's not my favorite, but I, Die Hard, the original. Yeah. You know, is it a Christmas movie? Is it not? And there's a big faction of people that agree with me that it is a Christmas movie. Takes place over the holidays, deals with family, trying to restore that family. So where does love actually fall? Is that a Christmas movie or not a Christmas movie? Yeah, I think it's def- it's for sure because it's got Christmas songs in it, right? Well, it's definitely set around the holidays. Yeah, because there's a lot of Christmas songs in that. Mm-hmm. Right? I would say Love Actually definitely a Christmas movie. Is that your favorite? I mean, I do watch it every year. You know, it's sweet. <laughs> okay, well, that's pretty high on the list then, yeah. It's endearing, yes. And the cast, you know, it's just, I mean, you can't go wrong with that group of folks. So For sure. What would you kick off the list then? Is there one that you're like, Someone says, oh, my favorite Christmas movie. And you're like, no, get out of town. That's not a Christmas movie. I feel like people are trying to get on that list because then they'll play their movie a lot during each season. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a good list to be on. So, um, no, but I would say my, no, I don't have anyone that should be off the list. And again, I did a tiny cameo in this, but I do like Elf. Yeah. I like Elf because it's funny. I love Elf. Such good comedy in it. And it just makes me laugh. So it feels good like a Christmas movie, but I just laugh in that movie. And I really, really like it. I don't know how many people know that you, since, you know, since A Christmas Story, which is quite some time ago, you have obviously grown up and you have a lot of work behind the camera as a producer and directing. How did you make that segue? What was... Was there like a, a moment for you that you're like, I actually really think I want to be involved in more of like creative process? Yeah, I had always wanted, I always had an interest in stuff behind the scenes. And I have probably spent more time on sets than sort of anywhere outside of my home in my life. Because I started at two and a half and I've just worked really my whole life. And so I always had a curiosity about what the filmmaking process was. And a lot of times, you know, after a setup, 
when they're going to sort of change the camera angle, a lot of the actors go back to their trailer and relax. And a lot of time I found myself as a kid staying on set and watching or asking questions. And then eventually some directors would let me operate a shot maybe, or, you know, I would ask about the lenses and sort of what was going on. And I had a curiosity about it. And so that really led to, I think, realizing that I wanted to, to explore other areas. And um, when I was around 18, I went to college for a little bit, community college for a minute. And I was homeschooled my, a lot of my life because I was working. So I didn't have a lot of school experience. I liked it. It was fine. But I really wanted to get, I think, behind the scenes. And I asked the director of A Christmas Story, Bob Clark, who was really a great mentor to me. Um, and I said, what do I do? You know, I kind of want to make a transition. And he said, get into the edit room. And it's where you're going to learn, you know, really how movies are made. You'll learn what kind of you did right in terms of the footage. You'll learn what you did wrong and how you got to put it together to make it work. Because it's sort of the final rewrite. It's the final frontier. It's you got what you got and you got to make it work. Um, you got to piece it all together. So it was, he was totally right. Um, and so I got some, <laughs> I remember I got, I asked for an apprentice edit position on a movie that I was in because I, I had access. And I remember the director thinking like, how vain is this guy? Like he wants to get in the edit room. <laughs> he wants to make sure you got the right angle of himself. Like, hey, yeah, totally. I was like, no, it's not that at all. I just, you're someone I have access to right now that I can ask. And this is coming out of the pike. So he's like, sure, go ahead. So I sort of started in that process and worked through post-production a lot. Then in production, and my goal was really to try to learn how everything was done. Um, and so I kind of moved through all facets of it and then just started slowly pushing into producing and was directing some short form stuff. And then really the first film I did um, was a film called Made, which was the first movie that John Favreau directed. Vince produced and starred in. They starred in together. Vince was a very good friend of mine um, since the late 80s. And I'd gotten to know, met John through him. And then I was doing a, kind of enough stuff and they had this movie set up and you know, asked me if I would come on board and uh, help, which was a great opportunity for me. And that kind of launched that career starting in film. Yeah. And you've worked with them quite a bit since then. I mean, just going through your IMDb list, it was like a whole slew of you three guys. Yeah. And lucky to be able to work with great friends. And, and Vince has been, you know, my best friend for a very long time. So to have the opportunity to be able to work together and all that stuff has been great. I'm so curious how you met in the 80s, though. We met on an after-school special. That is perfect for the 80s. <laughs> I was, it was one of his first acting jobs. It was one of my last acting jobs at the time. <laughs> and I was a kid on steroids. Uh, and it was the steroid story. And for some reason, I was the guy that they picked to be on steroids. Because <laughs> he's like over six foot, right? Yeah. It he's, he's like a huge five. guy. Yeah. yeah, it should have been him. Would have been a little easier. Um, and we had no special effects. So they would like roll my sleeves up on my shirt. And I was on steroids. <laughs> they roll them down. That was off steroids. Wow. <laughs> so it, it was a pretty, it was actually surprisingly effective. And we just, we did that and we met and we just became good friends. And that was, I think, like 89. Um, I didn't know you guys were friends for that long. And he was fresh from Chicago and wanting to start his acting career. And like you do, you kind of take a lot of the work that's available to you and did a great job in it. And I was trying to stop acting and was still <laughs> taking some jobs um, and get into the other side. So we became good friends and started hanging out and then started working together. And uh, have gone to, well, he was at your bachelor party and you both were at Steve's. And Steve tells us that it was your genius idea. And I see genius lovingly because I actually think it was a good idea to go and do a fishing charter that 
ended not so great? Oh, for Steve's? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm a big fisherman. I love to fish. And, you know, we were in an area near the ocean and I was like... It sounded like Vince wasn't on board. No, Vince is not a fisherman. (laughs) Vince is much more of the school of why would you (laughs) spend the time to catch the fish when you can just order a plate of fish (laughs) and you get the same results. (laughs) Uh, So he was not a huge fan of it. But I'll tell you, we did... um, we take a lot of trips. We do a lot of guys' trips. And for me, we a bunch of us went up to Napa as a trip. Yes. Um, and it was a great trip and not something that you would think of to do. But I think a lot of us older in relationships want to spend time together and wanted to find a great place to just kind of be with each other. So we got an Airbnb, a huge house that had this amazing view, had a cool pool, like a poker room, a pool table. And during the day, we go tour wineries. Yeah. And then get a bunch of wine at night. We come home and play poker and smoke scars and eat good meals and just kind of have a blast. And it was, it was, it's a really cool place. I know it's like the wine trip movie and it's a big girls trip area, I guess, or couples trip. No, it's not. It was really fun to do like kind of as a bunch, as a group of guys. There's some cool bars too that you can sort out in Sonoma, Napa. Yeah. You know, if after dinner you want to go out and have a drink and then you know, kind of go back to the house and just chill. I think people always think of Napa as being like wine girls country, but I actually, I, I worked at press as a somebody actually was there the night that you guys came in. Oh, cool. Um, which is how I, I figured out that you were all friends. I had no idea, but I, I think people have this perception that Napa is a place for girls trips. And I, I've seen a ton of bachelor parties. Like you're not the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great. You know, I think Maybe the lack of strip clubs makes the wives comfortable. I don't know. But it's a great place for a bachelor party because you can kind of like, as you said, you can rent the cool house. You can play poker. You can smoke cigars. You can drink wine. And like, yeah, and that's kind of what you want to do. Yeah. All of us wanted to do for sure. And just kind of, especially with a lot of people now spread out across the country. So once you get to see them, you kind of want to really spend time together and see them. And it's a great place. And like, you know, sort of where we started this conversation, like wine is a great conversation sort of peace and that's what you want to do is catch up with each other and be together so yeah no yeah it's an it's an awesome awesome way to do it i love that you did that i did my my one of my best friends bachelorette parties in napa and then i did my sisters in vegas and i loved my sisters in vegas but i definitely remember the one in napa much more than i remember the vegas one well, i'm not surprised <laughs> yeah shocking everyone's like really um i no, actually I, remember I think... that one <laughs> <laughs> but it was nice and like to your point so many people are spread out around the world right now and i hadn't seen you know my friends in in years and being able to spend time with them and drink wine and celebrate and totally you know we definitely probably got just as loaded as we did in vegas we just you know weren't doing crazy things at 4 a.m yeah and you get loaded during <laughs> the day then you take a nap then you eat then you get loaded at night right. and you get up and you get loaded because everyone's like, pace yourself. You start drinking at 11 o'clock in the morning because you schedule all these wine yes. tours. And we had a big bus, which is great. And it's like, all right, go slow. Do you remember where you went? Chateau Montalena uh, was one that we went to, which was great. Classic. Yeah. Um, well, see, that was probably the first one. <laughs> and then after that. <laughs> it's all blur after that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll ask you, you know, which glass is, which glass is lower. And uh, that generally is the tell for which one you liked better. So you don't have to. Is that the, that's the burgundy? That's the burgundy. Yeah. Because the port, you know, I went with a little more traditional port glass. So all right. A little, something a little smaller. Um, no, the port was delicious. Uh, William Sillian Port. And then the. What about you guys? Which one's lower? Oh, the burgundy. The burgundy for me as well. Burgundy. Yeah. But it's more, yeah, it's more a function of kind of where I am in the day, you know? Yeah. Like I'll have cheese later and yeah. I'll crush this. Yeah, I agree. It's not a right. problem. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah, they're both going to get finished. Yes, neither is going down the drain. For sure. Yeah, I assure you that. (laughs) No, not once going down the drain. It's true. Well, good. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for chatting, Wyan, and chatting about, you know, your your crazy but so interesting life. Um, You know, I think uh, it's, it's such an honor to have you on here. Our family looks forward to seeing your face on the screen every single Christmas. Um, and they are just so excited that I get the chance to talk to you and drink wine with you, which is really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you guys. Of course. Yeah, right? No, this has been awesome. And thank you for having me. And Anytime. Thank you for teaching me a little bit of wine. I got some notes. and Yeah, if you need anything um, in that way, I will send you that book. I'm going to go check this out. And so thank you. We'll see you soon. Hopefully, hopefully in California. Uh, I appreciate it. Likewise. Cheers. Oh, man, I am so excited to get off of this podcast and call my family immediately and tell them all about what just happened. How fun was that? I love his enthusiasm for the wines today. That was really fun to talk through with him. But yeah, just like a really, you know, down to earth, smart guy, like great perspective on on a lot of things. And he's so well connected. He has this amazing history in the industry, but he's really just like, you know, a normal dude. Super grounded, very normal. Seems like he came from a very normal household as well that kept him grounded throughout his career as a child actor and then doing incredible things behind the camera with Vince Vaughn and John Favreau. What a cool guy and what a fun guy to be able to share some wine with today. I know we were both excited about the Burgundy, but yeah, again, like really refreshing to taste something different, to have a fortified wine uh, on the podcast, which is, again, I can't believe we haven't yet, but we haven't. So, uh (laughs) (laughs) well, as we said, I think so many people are are afraid of ports and fortified wines because they just deem them as sweet and they don't want to drink sweet wines. But I think this is a perfect opportunity to weave it in. And this was a delicious one, although it is a hard one to find. So, Let's talk about where we can find these wines that we had on the podcast today. Oh, yeah. Well, for sure, you can find them on uh, wineaccess.com. And of course, sometimes we post about wine, but we also sometimes have offers on Instagram that you can't take advantage of anywhere else other than engaging on IG with us. So we're uh, just at Wine Access on Instagram. And of course, we're also active on Facebook at the Wine Access Experience. Yes. And just to recap, we have the 2013 Williams Salium port from San Benito County. And if this is something that you're interested in, well, you got to get on the list with Lara Koffer. We talked about her a bit on the podcast. Shoot her a DM, shoot her an email. Um, She is the person to talk to about getting that wine because it is a bit allocated. The other one, however, is available on the site at times, although wines do tend to sell out very quickly. And that is the domain Jean Griveau Von Romanet 2018 from one of our favorite regions, that is Burgundy. So, and a, a reasonable wine at that for Burgundy. For Von Romanet, I think sub $100. Oh. Um, a delicious wine that is in such a great spot for being as young as it is. Yeah, agree. I think this has years and years of enjoyment to come, but um, I really am enjoying it today. It's it's beautiful. It's silky. It's perfume. It's elegant. It's like all the things you want in, in a beautiful Redberg. Yeah, you enjoyed it today and last night, Vanessa. I remember. <laughs> busted <laughs> yep alright well if you enjoyed this podcast and you want more of it be sure to subscribe and if you really love what's going down on this show every single week leave us a review tell us what you're enjoying a five star review would be most welcome and appreciated you can also find more content more video content over on Instagram at Wine Access Unfiltered and on Twitter at Wine Access Pod that's where we keep you up to date 
on what's to come and give you sneak peeks of things that we can't show you here on podcast land. So I hope to see you there. Vanessa, I know what you're doing tonight um, because you've got a bottle of port and a bottle of burgundy. So I don't even have to ask you. So (laughs) I'll send you on your way and I'll say cheers. 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 